We are presently in chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, and it's an important passage of Scripture that we need to fully grasp, because there's much more depth of meaning in this passage than perhaps might be seen at first sight. Now, there's a depth of insight that God gives, I believe, to those who put their trust in Him, and that's what we're seeking this morning, insight in His Word that we might apply what He shares in His Word in our regular worship of Him, in our daily living for Him. And I pray that that might be the case today with regard to those things that are spoken in God's Word this morning through Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 22, beginning with verse 15, begins a series of confrontations that take place in Jerusalem at the temple. Remember that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He will be crucified not many days after these events. And we need to be mindful of the fact that what Jesus is doing is that he is presenting himself to the people of Israel now as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He had come to them on that first day of the week as their king, riding on the donkey. They rejected that. He had already turned the tables of the money changers in the temple, raising great consternation among the religious leaders of the day. They had already determined to do away with this one who made the claim that he was the Son of Man. They thought that he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And he was. But they didn't accept it. And they wanted to get rid of him. They had already determined that they would put him to death. They just didn't know exactly how they were going to accomplish that with so many people coming to Jerusalem during the Passover And as we continue reading through this gospel record, we'll realize, I hope, that this Passover is a very, very important Passover event. And the word Passover comes from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, where God delivered his people from slavery out of the hands of the Egyptians. In a remarkable, miraculous way, God delivered his people. They were slaves for so long, and now they were being set free. And the very last of ten plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt to bring that to pass was what we call the Passover. And the Passover is named that because God told his people that he would pass over them if they would do one thing. They were to kill a lamb, a lamb that they would have taken into their home just three or four days actually before taking that lamb and slitting its throat, drawing the blood out of it and putting the blood with a hyssop branch onto the doorposts and the top post of their doorway. And having done that, if they were obedient to that, the Lord promised he would pass over them when the angel of death would come through the entire land of Egypt and the firstborn of everyone that did not have the blood on their doorpost was to die. It was a terrible, terrible event for the Egyptians and anybody else who lived in Egypt during that day of wrath that God poured out upon those who would not accept 
His salvation. So He did save them. With a great mighty hand, He drew them out of Egypt. And that Passover was to be celebrated, according to Leviticus chapter 23, every single year from then on. They did miss a few years. Obviously, in the wilderness, they only practiced it, as far as we know, twice. But when they went into the land, they began at that Passover season by observing Passover before they entered into the land. And presumably, every year since, faithful Jews have observed that particular Passover feast. Almost all Old Testament events are pictures of something that God wanted to convey with regard to those things that the people of God need to understand with regard to what He has accomplished on behalf of those that He chooses to love. And that includes all of us here today. He has expressed His love by offering up a sacrifice. Just like they did on the day of Passover and every year after that, offering up a sacrifice. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the sacrifice that we observe is not the slaughtering of a physical lamb, as was done by the people of Israel, but by sacrificing His own Son, who became for us that sacrifice that the Passover lamb was picturing so that we could see that there is a significant implication in the Passover observation and what Christ has done for us through His sacrificial death on the cross. Paul tells us, Christ, our Passover, died for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that He died once for all and there is no more need now than for a yearly sacrifice because He died once for all and it is finished. That's why Jesus on the cross, when He was hanging on the cross, His very last words before He took His last breath were, It is finished. And so it was. It is indeed finished. The work of Christ on the cross was all that was needed to cover and purge away all sins of all who would by faith accept that sacrifice. John the Baptist pointed out to Jesus as he was walking by, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's every reason for us to understand and apply those things that were required under the Old Testament Feast of Passover to those things that Jesus was accomplishing in that day that He presented Himself as the very Lamb of God. Now, I mentioned that during that week prior to the slaying of the Lamb, that four days, they were to not only bring the Lamb into their home, kind of like a family pet, but they were to examine that Lamb. They were to look for any blemish, any spot, any imperfection. And if there were any, the lamb would have to be rejected and they'd need to get another lamb in its place. One that was perfect. It had to be of a certain age. It had to be without spot, without blemish. Jesus, as our Passover lamb, was such a one as this. Because He was sinless. He was without spot or blemish. Without any stain of sin. And so that picture of the Lamb needing to be perfect translates to us as that which was a beautiful illustration of what Christ, our Passover, was for us indeed.
Those are important concepts. And what we look at today in this passage is the fact that Jesus is indeed being inspected, if you would, by the religious leaders. And we'll see that, I pray, as we move forward in these texts that we'll be looking at today. Jesus had just finished talking to all of those who were there gathered in the temple, and he had given several parables, and they were actually condemning the religious leaders, for their unbelief. And now the religious leaders are coming back and they're coming before the Lord and they're asking questions of God, the Son, in a hopeful attempt to find blemish, to find some imperfection. So they can accuse Him before the multitudes and that way, the people would reject Jesus. So they were very thoughtful. They were very careful in their coming together and devising some means by which they could stump him. Can you imagine the very Word of God, the Son of God, being somehow stumped by those people who thought they were special before God and they were not? That's the scene that we'll be looking at this morning. The first instance is recorded in verse 15 and following, chapter 22, Matthew's Gospel. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, We know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Listen to what they're saying. They're attempting to butter him up. All these platitudes, all these things that they're saying, they don't believe. If they believed it, they would be followers of him. But they're trying to flatter him and giving him perhaps the impression that they're on his side after all. But take note of who it is that's asking these questions that will be asked. The Pharisees, we've already seen them. The Pharisees and scribes were one group. They were the religious conservatives of the day. But notice who the Pharisees have lockstepped with in this particular scene. Those that are known as the Herodians. Well, who are they? Are they religious leaders? No. They're basically civil leaders. They're what would be also known as Hellenists, which means that they had leanings toward Greek or Roman culture. They didn't really have the Jewish religion that they were considering as being of great importance to them. On the other hand, they rejected pretty much all of the Jewish faith, and they sided with Rome. They were hand-in-hand with Roman government officials one of the leaders of the Jewish religious system in that day was a Herodian, hired. He paid for the office, hired by Rome. They hated one another, the Pharisees and Herodians did. They saw no common ground, if you will, until now. It's amazing when 
somebody has an enemy and another enemy as well, well, if you join forces with one of your enemies, now you're actually able to come together with some kind of an agreement to come against that common enemy. That's what they were doing here. Their common enemy was Jesus Christ. The Herodians didn't like him. Neither did the Pharisees. So they come together in an attempt, in a vain attempt, to trip him. The question is asked in verse 17. They said, tell us, therefore, what do you think? We want your opinion. No, they didn't. They wanted to stump him. They tripped him with this question. It's a trick question. Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Notice the formation of that question. It's very clear that they were trying to do something here that would have taken somebody else other than the very Word of God by a deceitful attempt to trick. The first part of the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus had said no, they would have immediately gone to the Roman authorities and the Roman authorities would have come and found this person to be an insurrectionist and they would have arrested him. It's not legal to pay taxes to Rome. You're out of here. You're done. That's what they were hoping for. They were hoping for an affirmative. But if he said the opposite, if he said instead, it's not right for you to pay taxes, I had that backwards. If it's not right for you to pay taxes, then the Roman government would come in. If it's right for you to pay taxes, this is what I should have said in the beginning, but I had them mixed up, I'm sorry, but this is what I meant to say. If you see what they are doing here, if you are supposed to be paying taxes to Rome, and he said, yes, that is so, that would have upset the multitude because they were under Roman bondage. They hated the Romans for the most part. So either way, if he'd answered one or the other of those questions as they were posed to him, he would have at least been in trouble by the Roman authorities or by the multitude. They thought they had him. Verse 18 says, but. I love that three-letter word. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Whoa, that's pretty strong stuff. You hypocrites. Oh, by the way, wait until we get to chapter 23 to find out more about what Jesus has to say about these hypocrites. But he's saying, I see your vain attempt to trip me up. Why do you test me? Why would you want to test the Son of God? He goes on and says, show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. Interesting. They're asking the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Rome? And if they thought that it was wrong, and the Pharisees did, why would they have the money, Roman currency, at hand? Of course, the Herodians loved the Romans, and perhaps the money came from one of their pockets. But they were able to present the coin to Jesus Regardless, a Roman coin, a denarius, a day's wage. They presented it to Jesus. And when he saw it, he took it and examined it. And in verse 20, he says, 
Whose image and inscription is this? It's interesting that the Roman coin in that day had a, an inscription that talked about Rome, the peace of Rome, of Roman government upon that particular coin. And on the other side, an image of the present Caesar, Tiberius. Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, and here's his answer, it's not one or the other. Take note of what he says. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He puts it back on their shoulders. Render, therefore. The word render can be translated and probably should be translated, give back. It belongs to Caesar. That coin was Caesar's coin. And he says, if it's Caesar's, give it back to Caesar. But what belongs to God, give it back to God. I love that statement. It is perfect. Of course, it's perfect. It's the Son of God who spoke it. They had nothing they could say in response to this great response of our Lord. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled. They were dumbfounded and left him and went their way. Case closed. They failed in their attempt. That's the first inspection. They found no imperfection. The second one comes, this time by another group known as the Sadducees the liberals of that day. They only believed in the first five books written by Moses in the Old Testament. They accepted nothing else. None of the wisdom writings, none of the history writings, none of the things that were spoken of in any other area. All the prophets were disregarded by the Sadducees. Why? Because they just looked at God in a very different way than the Pharisees did. They thought that God basically started everything and kind of walked away from it, just like so many religious systems in our day. They accepted the writings of Moses because in the writings of Moses there were 613 laws that they all had to obey, which they all were not able to do. But the Sadducees were saying, this is the true word of God. Nothing else fits our understanding of who God is and what God has done for us. They were sad, you see. That's kind of a play on words. If you didn't get it, I'll explain it another time. But they were the Sadducees, liberals of that day. And we have many churches, by the way, that fall into that same classic example as what we just described, unfortunately. The Sadducees came. And listen to what the confrontation here is about. In verse 23... Matthew tells us the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. If you're not familiar with this part of the Old Testament scriptures, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's called the Leverite marriage. It goes well passed even to Abraham's time. But under the law, Moses recorded for the people of God that if an individual married to a woman 
dies, then he had no children. If that were the case, there would be no one to pass on his land to, his heritage to. No one would inherit that property that had been his. And so the Lord, through Moses, made it so that the people of God could continue to retain ownership of the land that they were given by the Lord when they first went into the land. So if the man dies and has no children, there's nobody to pass it on to, he made this provision. The next of kin, usually a brother, or it could be a cousin, or a close relative, but first the closest brother would take that man's wife and they would bear children together and the first son that would be born in that relationship would be declared to be the son of the deceased so that that son could take the inheritance on behalf of his dead father. That was just the way things worked out in that day. It's not something that you find many places in today's world, but perhaps there are some. But the point is, that's what the Sadducees were talking about in this particular case, the Leverite marriage. But they take that Leviticus, or rather Deuteronomy passage, and they really, really blow it up out of real likelihood of being possible. This is what they say. Verse 25, Now, they were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. The Leverite arrangement takes place. Likewise, the second also died, and the third, even to the seventh. Somebody might want to start questioning, who is this woman anyway? Last of all, the woman died also. And here's their point. This is what they're trying to show Therefore, in the resurrection, they said, whose wife of those seven men will she be? For they all had her. It's a ridiculous, stupid, actually, if I may use the word, proposition. And stupid is in the Bible, by the way. Don't blame me for saying something that you think I shouldn't say. But listen, this proposition, they were thinking, because they don't believe in the resurrection, they wanted to make a foolery out of the whole system of those who believed in the resurrection. Well, keep in mind that they only allowed truth in their eyes to come from just the first five books of the Bible, what we know as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. They thought they had him. After all, it made perfect sense. If there is a resurrection and all seven had her to wife, well, in the resurrection, then which one of them will be married to her? They presented what seemed to be a closed case, an impossible situation to resolve. Jesus answered, verse 29, and said to them, You are mistaken. Not knowing the Scriptures, one, know the power of God, two. Not knowing the Scriptures, Jesus was saying, listen, 
if you had known the Scriptures, you wouldn't be presenting such a ridiculous case as what you've just given. If you knew the power of God, you wouldn't be presenting that silly example that you have just presented to me. People, listen. That is the same requirement for all today as it was for them in that day. Know the Scriptures and know the power of God. If you don't, then start reading the Word of God until you do know the Scriptures and start praying to God the Father to reveal to you His will in your life so that you might know the power of God. Those are both of them still something we need to address in our daily living. Know the Scriptures and know the power of God. That's essential if you're going to live for Him. Because if you don't know the power of God, then you may as well be not going to church at all. If you don't know the Scriptures, then you'd be happy in some of the most mainline churches where they speak of things that really are against God's will, even though they would say, oh, God is love. And yes, He is. But what they promote, what they encourage, what they actually embrace is not God's will. They don't know that that's the case because they don't know the Scriptures. Back to the Sadducees. Jesus responded to them, you really need to consider what the Scriptures say. And before we get to what Jesus does say, I'd like to take you through a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament Scriptures this morning, outside of those first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, those books that the Sadducees relied on as being truth, to point out the fact that the Old Testament Scriptures do speak of the resurrection. I'd like to first of all go to Job. It's the oldest book known to the Scripture writers. It is probable that Job lived around the time of Abraham. So this is before the law was given. Job chapter 19 Job had been confronted with his friends, who weren't real good friends after all, but he was presenting some truth here that we need to see. In the time of Abraham, this man knew something, and he speaks it clearly so that you and I might know that he was aware of these things. He says in verse 25 of Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last, on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying? I will be alive after my body goes into the grave. There's no escaping this. Look what else he says. Verse 27 says, Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. He will see the Redeemer. Now, Job did not know what we know. But the Redeemer is Jesus. And Job knew that he would see Jesus after his body went into the grave and decayed. That's resurrection. There's no, no way of understanding that outside of that. Well, how about... Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says this, Your dead shall live. Okay. 
That could be, um, well, reincarnation, couldn't it? Oh, please. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't go there. Your dead shall live, he says. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. A resurrection. All who have gone to the grave will be raised up. That's what Isaiah is saying here. And then he says, Awake and seeing you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Pretty clear that the writer of Isaiah, the prophet, believed in the resurrection. And what about another Old Testament example? Turn to Daniel chapter 12. Beautiful illustration of the power of God demonstrated through the raising up of all who have died. For Daniel says in this prophetic statement, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, the angel Michael, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And I present to you the likelihood of that event that he just spoke of in this passage is soon to happen. And at that time your people, the Jews, shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the resurrection. Rising up after death. Those three illustrations from the Old Testament Scriptures speak of the living after dying. And it is all, not just a chosen few, who will be raised from the dead. Now, the Old Testament doesn't give complete revelation. For that completer revelation, we need to go to the New Testament. Second Corinthians, chapter 5. Paul writes these words. Verse 1, chapter 5, Second Corinthians. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that's your flesh, by the way, it's just a tent. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Heavenly body, eternal body. That's the promise to those who believe. For in this we groan, he continues in verse 2, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are not in this tent, or we rather are in this tent, now, and we groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit of God is a seal of this promise. We are always confident, he says in verse 6, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. For we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Where is the Lord? My guess is he's up there somewhere. 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and there's coming a day when He will be sent by the Father to call us home to be with Him. And when He raises us up out of this vile body, we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, Paul tells us elsewhere, and we'll be then with Him forever. Clothed in eternal bodies rather than these vile bodies that now we have to deal with on a daily basis. Well, that's the proof from the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures. But Jesus couldn't go to those Scriptures because the Sadducees didn't accept them. But, of course, Jesus is much smarter than you and I, and very much smarter than the Sadducees. They didn't know the Scriptures. You do. They didn't know the power of God. You do. But he now points them to a proof of the fact that the resurrection is indeed something that will take place. Verse 29, back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And here he's going to give the reason why he sets them up for that terrible realization that they didn't have a clue. Verse 30 says, For in the resurrection, he's saying, Oh, this is a resurrection. In the resurrection, there's a certainty of that. In the resurrection, he says, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, before we get too awfully upset about that statement, let's continue reading. In verse 31, he says, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... Oh, do you remember that statement? Have you not read? Have we been talking about that one question that Jesus asked over and over and over again? And he's asking again here, have you not read? They should have read, but they didn't. Or if they did, they didn't think about it. They didn't process it. They didn't realize its importance, its implication, its impact on them. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying... Notice that Jesus says God spoke these words. How did God speak these words? Through Moses' writing. Out of the book of Exodus. One of the books that they themselves agreed were from God. He's trapping them instead of the other way around. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Notice he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. As though, now that Abraham's gone, it's no longer a fact. That's why Jesus says, I am. This is a word from God himself. I am the God of Abraham. And implying that he still is the God of Abraham. Abraham lives. Moses lives. Jeremiah lives. Daniel lives. David lives. All of the saints who have gone before us who believed in Jesus Christ after His death, burial, and resurrection, live. That's what Paul told us, remember. Paul also elsewhere said, ah, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Oh, people of God, when we take our last breath, either through natural causes or in the rapture, from this body we will be changed, we will be caught up together with all of the saints and know that they all are still alive, as we will all be for all eternity. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Oh, praise His holy name for this wonderful truth. Jesus is presenting to the Sadducees a clear-cut proof 
from the scriptures that they accepted that there is indeed a resurrection. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They marveled at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. They were dumbfounded. They said, wow, truth from this man's lips cannot be refuted. Inspection number two failed. Let me just remind you of what Jesus said in this response in verse 30. For the resurrection, in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, again, I want to just take a few moments to say that those of us who have been married, faithfully married to our beloved spouse for many, many years, and I submit to you that in the 47 plus years that I've been married to my wife, I love her. And I think that there's no better relationship than what we have in this world than a marriage relationship that is bound together in love. I'm grateful for that. Marriage is wonderful. But what Jesus is saying that in heaven, there is no more giving in marriage And the primary purpose of marriage on this side of death is for procreation. As well as living with a wonderful wife or husband, you get to have children. And that is one of the reasons why we get married. At least it used to be. As far as God is concerned, it's the right reason. In the Old Testament Scriptures, that is what God says. Marriage is so that you can have children that will be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But there's no need for that any longer in heaven. But like the angels, well, in that sense, that there's no need for us to be getting married in heaven, that's not to say that we won't still recognize our husband or our wife as that mate that we had all of these years on this planet, but it's to say that now we have a relationship with Him that is far greater than any relationship on this earth. So if you are happy with your marriage relationship, you're going to be happier with the relationship that you have with Him. And you can still hang with your husband or your wife, but it won't be the same kind of relationship. After all, the bride of Christ, that's who we are, will be married to Him in the marriage feast. So we'll have a completely different relationship, not a worse relationship. I'm convinced it'll be a better relationship. And for those of you who are thinking, well, that's not a bad deal. I'm not really happy with my marriage relationship, so I don't care if I'm married up there with her or him or not. Well, that's a wrong attitude too. Jesus is just simply saying, look, there's something far better in the resurrection Well, if you have any questions about that, you can see me after the service. But let's move on. That's what the Sadducees had presented to him. In the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, whose wife should be? Jesus said, none of the above. So he slammed the door on their question. Inspection number two has failed. The people are astonished. They're not done yet. They're still trying to find the blemish. They're still trying to find an imperfection. And this time, the Pharisees come together secretly and they pick one of their lawyers, a scribe who is a specialist, an expert in the law. And one of the things that they 
look at with regard to the various laws, again, there are 613 of them, the Jews in that day, and in case of uh, the Orthodox Jews today, they still feel this way, that some things were more important than other things. Some laws were, if broken, more high in terms of the depth of uh, judgment than other laws, lesser laws. So they classified laws. Some were more of an issue. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, that's big. That deserves capital punishment. But maybe bearing false witness, maybe a little bit of envy or jealousy here and there isn't quite so important as the other bigger laws. Kind of like in the Catholic Church where they have mortal and menial sins. It's, it's a difference that they make as a distinction, but God doesn't make that distinction, by the way. God says all sin is sin, no matter what the sin may be. James tells us if you've missed it in one, you've missed it in all. But these efforts by the Pharisees brought forth by this particular lawyer is another attempt to trip Jesus up. Read along with me in verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which commandment is more important than all of the others? And Jesus says, I'll tell you. Verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. He's taking that out of Deuteronomy. Again, a passage that is very important to the Jews. They reflect on this passage daily. It's called the Shema. It's the proclamation that, Behold Israel! Your Lord God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Jesus says, that's the best of all. That's the greatest commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He adds something that they weren't expecting. He says this in verse 39, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything else that's written in the commandments of God fall under those two categories. Either you're loving God or you're hating God. If you love God and you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. All 613. Now that's a pretty tall order. And it begs the question, do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? In our Thursday evening meetings, we've been studying the book of First Corinthians. And in First Corinthians, there is a beautiful chapter known as the love chapter. It's what we studied last Thursday, actually. And that love chapter talks about love. It talks about how unfailing love is. It talks about the fact that love does not envy. Love does not puff itself up. Love does not this. Love does not that. It's a very condemning kind of passage if you look at it and you try to put your name before the word or in place of the word love. No man does not envy. No man does not get puffed up. No man proves all things. 
No, I don't think I can live up to that standard. That's why we have the Spirit of God in us, people. Because God knows that none of us could. But by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, He enables us to be that which we are to be in order to fulfill that which He requires of us. So how else can any one of us do what the Lord says that we must do? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's by the Spirit of God that you are enabled to do that. With you, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. I praise the Lord for that, don't you? Because I could make a mess of these things very, very quickly, but I know my God, His Word is true. His Word is true. These are the two commandments, Jesus says. If you obey those two commandments, you're good, you're in. Now, this lawyer had to have been very impressed with God's answer to his question. In fact, Knox's Gospel tells us something about that. In Mark chapter 12, Mark adds these things in verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, that's more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's good insight. In fact, Jesus commends this man. Although Matthew doesn't record this, Mark does for us. This is Jesus' response to this really very, very good response of that scribe. He says in verse 34, Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Inspection number three failed again. You see what's happened? is that Jesus was confronted by all of the religious leaders and the civil leaders to try to trip him up to see if there might be any imperfection in him as the Lamb of God if they had found something that he could not have gone to the cross and been the Savior of the world as we know he has done. Do you realize the implications of all of this? I hope you do. Because your life depends on it. I'm not talking about this life, although this is part of what I'm trying to say, but eternal life, life after death, depends on your understanding and acceptance of what has taken place in these confrontations that we've just presented to you this morning. If you fall into the trap of believing what the Pharisees believed, if you fall into the trap of believing what the Sadducees believed, if you fall into the trap of what the Herodians believed, you have fallen into a trap that you cannot get out of except by the grace of God. Jesus was not trapped by any of them, nor should any of us be. He is that perfect sacrifice. He proved it in these confrontations. We may as well finish the rest of the chapter, because Jesus sums it up well. Wouldn't you expect that to be the case? Verse 41 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, apparently right away, oh, he's the son of David. Everybody knows that. And yes, that was a correct answer. The son of David. David had been given a covenant by the Lord God that a son from his loins would sit upon his throne and reign forever and ever. That is the one that they called the son of David. And he would come. They believed that. And Jews commonly still do today. So do I. He will come back. What they don't accept is that he first came already. But Jesus asked that question for a reason. He knew what their answer would be. The son of David, of course. Everybody knows that. That's simple. Good, you passed the test. However, you need to understand something about this one who is known by you as the son of David. And it's found in one of your Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 110. Jesus is going to quote that. Verse 43, He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit, or in some translations by the Spirit, David was the prophet, writing by the influence of the Holy Spirit these words. He called Him Lord, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That presents a dilemma. Jesus asks the question, Now if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jewish culture, the father was a patriarch. The son would never, ever accept the father saying to the son, you are my Lord. It made no sense to them. Now here, by the Spirit, David is saying, My Lord, who is a descendant of my own flesh, is above me. Elsewhere in the Old Testament Scriptures, in Isaiah, we're, talk, we're told that the, the Messiah would be both the root and the offspring of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. How can he be the root, the source, as well as a branch, the result of Jesse? Because he came before as God, and he came after as the Son of Man. That's deity. That's divine. That's God in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. If David then calls him Lord, how is he then his son? You think they have an answer for it? Verse 46 ends the chapter with, No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. They're done. The inspection. They failed in finding any imperfection. They didn't realize it, but that's what they were doing. Now the lamb can go to be the sacrifice. And he did.